Heavenly Father, you are so kind to us and full of grace and we pray that in your great mercy you would teach us now of your ways and lead us in your paths. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a time when I was of the view that if you only tried harder, if you only had enough conversations, if you only persevered long enough, if only you were open and honest enough, then you could sort out any problem you had with a person. I remember a conflict I had uh, some years ago, a serious misunderstanding between myself and another person, uh, and I was convinced that we could get through it. We met once uh, to just chat. We were two uh, Christian men uh, looking to sort out our differences. We met and we talked. It didn't really seem to get anywhere, so we decided to meet a second time, this time with a mediator. We were serious about helping each other come to a better mind and find a way forward in this relationship. Uh, as a consequence of the second meeting with the mediator, things actually got slightly worse. And so we met a third time, again with a mediator, and this time things got a whole lot worse. And as a consequence, we barely spoke to each other for four years after that. I couldn't believe at the time that it was possible to understand a situation better and better, to have a more and more accurate analysis of what was going on, and at the same time for things to get worse and worse. I was foolishly convinced of the absolute power of wisdom. We live in a world that's past the cultural revolution, we're past the scientific revolution, we're way through the industrial revolution, we now live in the knowledge revolution. Our culture is a culture which says that if you can understand things, then you can control them. The fastest growing area of study is information technology. And I understand the course Infometrics, although I've asked this the last two days and not a single sausage has done Infometrics. Anyone here studying Infometrics? Now, well, look, you guys are just in the wrong game. You should get into Infometrics because that's really where it's all at. Great title as well, Bachelor of Info. The significant competitive edge in life now is information. On promising employees, companies will spend thousands upon thousands of dollars providing you with what they call life coaching. That is, helping you to be a wiser person. Sales of self-help books are astronomical. If you've got a bad marriage, a bad kid, a bad dog, a bad back, bad allergies or a bad shape, then what do you do these days? You buy a book. You get some knowledge. You get clued up. You figure it out. You get wise because that's how you fix things up. That's how you fix things up, because that's how life and reality work. If you can't understand something, then master it. Uh, in 1999, a Canadian newspaper reported uh, that a certain Francis Rauscher, who was a psychologist at the University of Wisconsin, had demonstrated empirically a few years earlier that 10 minutes of listening to Mozart's Sonata for two pianos in D major could boost a person's IQ. Okay, apparently his sonata for one piano in C minor was hopeless. But the D major, it really did the job. Soon parents and teachers took advantage of the discovery, hoping that their children might attain a few extra marks in their HSC. 
An entrepreneur turned these preliminary findings into a seemingly authoritative self-help book and others released compact discs of Mozart music that bore extraordinary health claims on the CDs. The governor of Georgia decreed that every newborn should leave the hospital with a state-purchased cassette or CD of classical music. And catalogues began offering stethoscope-like devices so that pregnant women could introduce babies in the womb to Mozart. If there's a fix to be had that involves the injection of knowledge or a competitive advantage by way of knowledge, then we will go for it because we think that's how the world works. The teacher, Kohelet, who we met last week, the central figure in the book of Ecclesiastes, was himself not convinced of the absolute power of wisdom. He knew better than that. He knew that the value of wisdom was partial, relative, sometimes. But the fact that it was partial didn't make it worthless. And that's one of the key lessons that the teacher has for us today, that just because at the bottom of uh, things life is absurd, it doesn't mean that it's not worth living or of no value. That's what we looked at last week. Now, he says, just because wisdom doesn't provide you with guarantees in life, that doesn't make wisdom worthless either. Don't despise the day of small things, of small meetings, of small victories. Life is impenetrable, yes. Absurd, yes. Havel, yes. It's resistant even to the best laid plans, yes. But does that mean the whole thing is a joke and we might as well just give up even trying, throw in the towel and act like a fool? No, it doesn't. And it's both sides of this coin that the teacher holds together. Neither pretending that he's got everything under control and worked out, nor collapsing into despair and hopelessness. And the thing that enables him to do that is to recognise that this is the way that God has made things. This is the way that God has made wisdom in order that we might fear him. And we see this point played out in regard to wisdom right through chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, now would be a good moment to open to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It's framed by two theological reflections which function, if you like, as bookends for this unit and give the section shape. First chapter 6 verses 10 to 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what human beings are and that they are not able to dispute with those who are stronger. The more words, the more vanity. So how is one the better? For who knows what is good for mortals while they live the few days of their vain life? Which, pass, which they pass like a shadow. For who can tell them what will be after them under the sun? Here is a statement of our inability to cut a path of our own choosing through life. Order and patterns are set. Whatever exists has already been named. We can't just conform reality according to our desires. Let me give you a transcript of a US Navy radio communique. Voice 1. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Voice 2. Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Voice 1. This is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. No, says voice 2. 
I say again, divert your course. Voice 1. This is the aircraft carrier Enterprise. We are a large warship of the US Navy. Divert your course now. Voice 2. This is a lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> you can't conform reality according to your desires. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't matter if you're a warship of a human being. A, a great big tanker. Powerful, wealthy, capable, articulate, gifted, strong. Life doesn't work that way. Whatever exists has already been named and what people are is known. You can't beat literally the big guy, says Kohelet here, presumably God. Another way to put this is that you can talk and talk more and more words. But in the end, it makes no difference. It's all just hot air. It's absurd. Who can tell what is good for us to do the few days of our vain lives? Who can predict the future? The middle of the chapter says much the same thing, although now the superintending role of God is clear. Chapter 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that mortals may not find out anything that will come after them. Uh, the crookedness that we experience in the world, that is the work of God, says the teacher. And who can make straight, that is, who can make smooth and predictable and orderly, manageable, what God has made crooked? And that means that when times are good, what you should do is thank God and enjoy them. And it may be that you're in good times at the moment. But it also means that when times are bad... In the day of adversity, well, understand that that's part of the deal as well. It's just not within our power. Desperately, though we may try, it is not within our power to make things work out 100% of the time. That's how it goes. The chapter concludes in the same way, aware of the deep mystery of life. Verse 23, all this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I'll be wise. But it was far from me. That which is is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? And again, chapter 8, verse 1, Who is like the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? The teacher surpassed all who were before him in wisdom. And still he recognises that the structure of reality, that which is, is deep, very deep. You, you may remember Brian Henderson. Channel 9 Newsreader. He may have been bold enough to say the way it is, September the 7th, 2006. But you know well enough that the 15 second grab that you just saw on the National 9 News doesn't tell you the way it is at all. It's got barely anything about the way it is in it. It's far more complex. That which is, or what happens under the sun, is another way the teacher puts it, is far off and deep, very deep, and who can find it out who is wise? Who is like the wise man who knows the interpretation of a thing? It's simply beyond us, says the teacher. We cannot grasp it. And isn't that true? Don't you find pretty much on any given issue, you hold strong, thought-out positions only to discover more facts, whether they're kind of global, grand issues or the issues of personal relationships. 
only to find out more facts and be forced to modify your views. Aboriginal land rights, the so-called war on terrorism, the refugee debate, the use of genetic technology, even church growth strategy. There are a million other things, aren't there, where either you're completely confused and you keep your mouth shut, or you lash out and find out that others have much better thought-out views than you. I was uh, hearing from someone uh, recently the other day uh, suggesting that the straightforward Christian response to the IR laws, the industrial relation laws, is to oppose them tooth and nail that these are appalling invasions and uh, offence against the poor in our country. I've heard equally passionate, equally committed Christians say that the best thing for the poor in our country is IR law reform along these lines. That that gives more business, which is the largest employer of people in our country, more flexibility and freedom to grow, that that means more jobs for more people and less poverty. And who's right? Do you know? Aren't you glad it's not your decision that you have to set out on a course which, for all your good intentions, may prove to be catastrophic in real people's lives? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? That which is, is deep, very deep and far off. So does that mean we just throw up our hands? Well, I don't know about IR, so I'm just going to forget about it. I don't know about Aboriginal land rights. I'll forget about that. I don't know about a genetic technology. I'm not sure about a board. I don't, whatever it might be. You just throw up your hands and say, if it's not everything, if I can't nail this down so that anyone who disagrees with me is an idiot, clearly, well, then I'm just going to throw the towel in. I think that's often the way we think, isn't it? That kind of all-or-nothing approach to things. The teacher says it's a juvenile response. Now, we don't just throw out wisdom because it's not absolute and provides no guarantees. He says rather hold on to it. Although hold on to it in a cautious, relative way. You see it in the first six verses of chapter 7. Having just asked who knows what is good, the teacher tells us a few of the things that might not be absolute good, but they are at least better. Verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of everyone, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of countenance the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. The theme here for the teacher is realism. Notice how the sayings interweave with Verses 1 and 2 and 4, uh, teaching the importance of recognising that death is the fate that awaits us all. And so the teacher says, here is one of the keys to wisdom, this partial wisdom. It's the fact that we all meet the same end. And laying that to heart, not pretending, not suppressing, laying it to heart. The teacher says it's better to be a deep realist to know that we live short, momentary, fragmentary lives. It's better to be a deep realist than a shallow optimist. Uh, this is hard for you, I think. I, I think I only really got to the point of 
taking seriously the fact that I might die uh, once I reached halfway. Uh, three score years and ten is 70. Uh, that's kind of, you know, what you get. Uh, when I got to 35, I realised I was on the downside of the hill. Uh, it, technology means that it's a bit longer that. I turned 40 recently, so I'm still on the downside of the hill. You're what, 20, 21, 19. I know you don't think you'll die. It just doesn't happen, does it? It can't happen. You're strong. I mean, theoretically, of course, but the teacher says, lay it to heart. Lay it to heart. Uh, I've not known many old people in my life. Uh, my, my, three of my grandparents uh, were, uh, died before I really got to know them. And uh, the other grandparent, I really didn't have much to do with her particularly. And at the church where I served previously, uh, there just weren't that many old people. Where I've gone now, though, there are lots of old people. Uh, I recently visited our oldest saint. Uh, he's in his 90s. He's lived a vigorous, vital life. Uh, just recently, he entered a nursing home and he now spends his time lying down. He's incapable even of sitting up, really. Uh, uh, he weighs about 30 kilos, I think. He's just utterly wasted away. He doesn't want to eat uh, at all. Uh, he's not capable of movement uh, because recently he suffered a couple of falls. I'm not sure if you know that older people have these things they call falls. Uh, I didn't really understand about falls, but my kids fall over all the time. They just get up. But when elderly people fall, they often either break their fall with their arms and break their arms, or they don't even realise they're falling until they're down, and so they don't protect themselves at all, and particularly their heads are vulnerable. Uh, Clary had a fall and uh, smashed his head. There's terrible bruising all around his head, but you don't heal when you're this run down. And so this bruising doesn't go away. Uh, he is just a broken down, dying shell of a man. Uh, if you don't go to nursing homes, can I suggest that you do? Take in the holidays, maybe just a visit with your church or a nearby church. Just go with someone who visits old dying people. Lay it to heart that death is what lies ahead of you. Be a realist about your life. This partial wisdom is what the teacher offers us. I think it's a good word to us. We live in a crass, superficial culture, don't we? Uh, we inhabit it and breathe it in uh, every day. It teaches us that fun is the greatest good. Fun. It's, it's, I mean, as soon as you say it, you think that's appallingly trivial. And it is, but we don't say it often enough, and so it just sort of slips under the radar. Fun is the inalienable right of all people, especially moi, and if anyone or anything interferes with my fun, well, that is to be eradicated immediately. That might be responsibility, it might be duty, it might be your word, it might be self-awareness, it might be hard personal work. If it interferes with fun, then I get it over and done with as quickly as possible, if not avoid it altogether. On the other hand, we know that outside our realms of fun, there is an enormous sea of suffering humanity, starving and dying, uh, billions, literally, of people desperately poor living on less than one US dollar a day. We see it on the TV and then we change channel and watch Friends. Or I met someone the other day who watched Neighbours. I didn't think anyone actually watched Neighbours. <laughs> but there was a person. She actually acknowledged it without shame. 
She didn't repent. <laughs> and the teacher says, don't bury your head in the sand. Know what is the situation. Death casts its long shadow over all of us. Don't just live your life for fun. That's trivial. It's better to know than to pretend. Or it's better to know that you're acting like a fool and hear the rebuke of the wise than to simply have people laugh at you. Better, but he's not forgotten where he started. This also is vanity, absurd, for even wisdom can be brought down, notice. Surely oppression makes the wise foolish. It's very difficult in a, in a pressed-upon context to retain wisdom. And a bribe corrupts the heart. This is just another way of saying peer group pressure is powerful, isn't it? You do more stupid things. What do they say? A collection of people is more stupid than any one of them on their own. That's often true, isn't it? In the same way, it's best not to push life too hard. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. The patient in spirit are better than the proud in spirit. Do not be quick to anger, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is as good as an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to the one who possesses it. The teacher says, starting projects is terrific. You may have all sorts of ideas and concepts, projects that you've begun. I have, I have a whole list of semi-started things. There's a great line in a Pink Floyd song, uh, plans that either come to naught or half a page of scribbled lines. And if uh, they'd written in the uh, more recent times, I would have said, or half a scribbled email. How many ideas have you had where you sort of jot a few thoughts down or send off an email? Hey, what about this? The teacher says, no, finishing is what's really important. Patient, cautious progress. Not being quick to anger, not complaining that things aren't better, not looking back to the past and saying how good they were then. Not dreaming grand dreams, just getting on with the job. This is the way of wisdom. And wisdom, though no guarantee, you're not going to understand everything, you're not going to be able to dot every I and cross every T. Wisdom does have its advantage. Its protection is like the protection of money. It gives life to the one who possesses it. You see what the teacher's saying? Feeble, but not futile. That's wisdom. Feeble, but not futile. A kind of middle way, neither all, nor nothing. This is the way of the teacher. Verse 15, In my vain life I've seen everything. There are righteous people who perish in their righteousness and there are wicked people who prolong their life in their evil doing. Do not be too righteous and do not act too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be too wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of the one without letting go of the other. For the one who fears God shall succeed with both. See, here is the teacher's modest proposal for life. This is meaning enough for us. It's not the whole story, everything organised, fully understood. 
given the fact that there are righteous people who perish in their righteousness, sadly, tragically, wrongly, and at the same time there are wicked people who prolong their life in the midst of their wickedness, sadly and tragically and wrongly, given these things, the advice of the teacher is to be neither too righteous nor too wise. For why should you destroy yourself? And likewise, not to be a fool or wicked, because then you may die before your time. Take hold of the one without letting go of the other. That is, don't be too righteous and don't be too wicked. Now this seems a bit alarming, doesn't it really? To have this kind of advice given to us. Don't be too wicked sounds a bit like recommending a little bit of wickedness. Uh, don't take too much aspirin when you've got a headache can mean take the right amount. Uh, but it doesn't have to. Uh, the command, uh, there's a command in the Bible not to murder one's neighbour in secret. Which is hardly recommending that you murder them in the open. Right? Now what the teacher's saying here is don't indulge in great evil. Mind you, just as worrying as the word about not being too righteous, surely we should be as righteous as possible. Verse 20, I think, gives us a clue. Surely there is no one on earth so righteous as to do good without ever sinning. You see what he's saying? We are what we are. This is all we can be. The kind of people who will continue to struggle with sin and sometimes sin deliberately and sometimes sin when we don't even have the faintest clue what we're doing. That's just the way life is. So don't break yourself trying to be something that you aren't and can't be, says the teacher. Be satisfied with this modest estimate both of our ability and of our possibility. I think there are some very important lessons for us here. Uh, we seem to be, don't we, an all or nothing culture. Either it's completely understandable, it's entirely comprehensible, it's utterly workoutable, in which case it's worth going for and being committed to, or it's a waste of time and a bad risk. Now this can come from a kind of hopeless overconfidence and people who keep being told how smart they are tend to be a little overconfident. Uh, and you keep being told how smart you are and that's a danger that you end up just being, you believe your own press. You believe what people tell you. Or it can come from a protective mechanism. You see, if you say, I won't really commit to anything until I'm certain, and you find yourself never quite able to be certain, that protects you from ever having actually to commit yourself. I want to suggest that perhaps the most obvious area where I see this is in the whole area of dating. Right? How does it work? I'm not sure if it works still this way. I don't talk much to people about these things anymore. My advice is regarded as somewhat quaint. But isn't it the case at least it used to be the case, that your people would talk to her people and they'd sort of chat about things and then they'd get back to your people and they'd talk to you and then you'd ask a few more questions and then the deal would be done by your, you know, representatives. <laughs> chat, chat, chat. Does she like me? Does he like me? What's he like? Does he enjoy sport? No, he's into music. Oh, that's okay. I mean, uh, then finally you might actually have a conversation with each other. Oh, by the way, would you like to go out? Oh, what a surprise. Yes. <laughs> Once you've got the deal done, once it's sorted and organised and risk-free and under control, then you get into it. Now, I have a friend who had a list as long as his arm 
of all the criteria that he wanted in a girlfriend. Uh, this was, I mean, this was a very impressive woman, <laughs> this list. I'm not sure that actually a woman like this has ever existed, frankly. And so guess what? He remained without a girlfriend. Because he couldn't have it all, he preferred nothing. And so he remained lonely. And the teacher says, that's not the way to live your life, demanding all or putting up with nothing. It doesn't work like that. We can't get all. We don't understand everything. You can't tie it down. You can't live your life on the basis that without certainty you will hold back. You see this all the time. Job. Only if it's a job that has the right pay, with the right conditions, where the boss treats me right, where the people are respectful to me, etc. That's when I'll be interested in a job. Otherwise, I'm just I'm going to sort of stay loose. Or a church. Only if a church has a fantastic preacher with an outstanding music program, with a deep social conscience, with Christians that are really, really very loving, not like me perhaps, but more loving than me. You know what I mean? Only if all of these things are satisfied by your church will you really give your heart to it. It doesn't work that way, says the teacher. It doesn't work that way. He's not an all or nothing person. If you hold your, put your life on hold until you can be certain, then you will never get around to living. Now, some things are better than others. Not great, not perfect necessarily, but better. And that will be especially flavoured by a realism about death, the limit to your life, the possibility of failure. It's a real possibility as well as wealth and happiness. These are partial answers, says the teacher, and it's enough to be going on with. It's enough to make commitment and passion and the pursuit of wisdom, even the partial wisdom that you can obtain, worthwhile. That's the conclusion I think he draws from the very obscure section in verse 25. I turn my mind to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the sum of things and to know that wickedness is folly and that foolishness is madness. I found more bitter than death the woman who is a trap, whose heart its snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. One that pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. See, this is what I found, says the teacher, adding one thing to another to find the sum, which my mind has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made human beings straightforward, and they have devised many schemes." The teacher wants to know the sum of all things. He wants to understand everything, but he only finds out two things. More bitter than death is the woman who is a trap and a woman among all these things he's not found. Now you have to ask yourself, what's going on here? Uh, has the teacher just had a bit of a brain explosion? He's just, uh, you know, what's he been smoking? Uh, is he just a misogynist? He's sort of been suppressing it all along, but there you go, firm evidence that the Bible is misogynist. Now, I think the key uh, to this is the fact that Ecclesiastes is part of what's called the wisdom literature and crucial in the wisdom literature is the personification of wisdom and of folly as two women. You might call them Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly. You see this right throughout the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Uh, Lady Wisdom is personified as calling out, addressing uh, to the simple. You that are simple, turn in here. Lay aside immaturity and live and walk in the way of insight. This is wisdom personified 
as a woman saying, come and, and follow me and I'll show you how to live life. But then there's Dame Folly, who also calls out to the simple, turn in here. Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Um, these are sexual metaphors for adultery. Actually, if you read along uh, in Proverbs, uh, you'll see that entering the house of Dame Folly is a kind of adultery. It's, it's, it's used as a metaphor. Adultery is used as a metaphor to describe what it is to abandon your proper spouse and to go and follow folly. And it has that kind of seductive attractiveness, doesn't it? Being stupid, being foolish, lashing out, telling people what you really think of them, just giving up on something or just trying to make things happen. Folly has that kind of seductive quality to it, which I think is why it's depicted as an adulteress. Uh, the editor of the Proverbs, who uh, is trying to persuade his son to go on the path of uh, wisdom, says about going in with folly, but they do not know that the dead are in there, in Dame Folly's house, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Well, how does that help us? I think what the teacher is saying is that when he turned his mind to know the sum of all things, he figured out two things. On the one hand, more bitter than death is the woman who is a trap, that is, Dame Folly. The sinner's taken in by her. In other words, he's saying, I'll tell you one thing I know, folly is a disaster. Whatever you do, don't be a fool. But at the same time, he says, he can find one really good guy in a thousand, one bloke who's a good bloke, upright, strong, principled, clear-minded, right? It's possible to find one really good guy, you know, in a thousand people. But he can't find a woman. Namely, he can't find Lady Wisdom. Folly is a disaster. But wisdom is beyond us. And that's how life is. That's how life is. Recognise the limits to wisdom. Don't just give yourself over to being stupid. Don't waste your life. Don't make a ruin of your life. But at the same time, don't pretend that you're going to understand anything much fully. It's very, very deep. And live with that. I think the second lesson for us is his conclusion. Don't be too righteous or too wicked. Martin Luther, the great uh, German reformer, had a saying. Uh, I once ended a church service with this. Uh, you know, the dismissal when you sort of send people out. Uh, I said this at the end of a church service. I had a very generous boss at the time who said, Andrew, that was interesting. Don't do it again. <laughs> Sin boldly, but believe more boldly still. Are there any Lutherans in the room? Any Lutherans? See, Lutherans, they just love this kind of stuff. Sin boldly, but believe more boldly still. You are what you are. You are one who will continue to struggle in this body under the sun with sin for the length of your days. If that's what you are, then you might as well embrace the fact and not pretend otherwise or try and be what you aren't yet. Be what you are boldly. Yes, accept and acknowledge the reality that this is where you're at. But believe more boldly still, says Luther. Live in God. Entrust yourself to God. Believe more boldly still. In another place, the teacher says, chapter 5, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes, 
Never be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be quick to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you upon earth. Therefore let your words be few. We're upon earth. We are limited. We are fragile. We are feeble. And when I say we, I mean you and me. No amount of technology, no library of self-help books, no medical advances really are going to change much about that. That's how it is. And the teacher says, live in the reality of what you are. Including not being too righteous and not being too wicked. Now Luther is not saying, and the teacher is not saying, I'm certainly not saying, commit sin. Right? That's not the point here. The point here is, you are yet this side of resurrection, aren't you? You live in the body. Be what you are. Don't pretend that you're something else. Don't get caught up in seeking to be that which you can't be yet. That doesn't mean just give up. It's a middle way that the teacher has for us. We're to live our lives in God, fearing Him, knowing Him. What the teacher, of course, did not know to say is that in Christ there's another dimension of our relationship to God, uh, which is to hope in Him. Hoping in Him for the day when we will all be changed, when we will be doing good without ever sinning, when we'll know the sum of all things. He didn't know that hope, but we do. Knowing that hope, I don't think undoes everything that the teacher says to us. It's not some kind of magician's trick at the end where he pulls a sort of theological rabbit out of his hat. No, we still live in this world with partial wisdom. We know in part now, says the Apostle Paul. We see through a mirror dimly, he writes. And isn't that true so much of the time? It's like fogged up glasses. Things are just not that clear to us. But that's okay. Because they're clear to God. And we're not to live in ourselves and worried about ourselves and anxious for ourselves. God is worried about us. God is anxious for us. He has us. We do not know yet what we will be. But when we see him, we'll be transformed. No, we still live in this world with partial wisdom. But the fact that we know a sure and certain hope gives us more all the more strength and power to live well with that partial wisdom in this world while we wait for the next. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have made us. We praise you that you have redeemed us. Uh, we know ourselves to be uh, feeble and foolish at times. And we pray that you would grant to us the strength of your Holy Spirit, the hope which comes in Christ, to live within the constraints and realities of this world in such a way that by faith in the Lord Jesus we will be brought safely to the next. And we ask it in his name. Amen.